What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 14. Non-targeted marketing was kind of silly when we knew exactly where our customers lived. We knew where they walked. We knew where they went to classes. So we just had to get out and touch our customers. Like we had to get out in front of them and they had to see the whites of our eyes. And so we didn't spend a dollar on marketing. I mean, we did it ourselves. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott. I am your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Here today, as usual, with my beautiful co host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol Scott? I have a very, very full belly. How's your belly feeling? I am not sure where you're going with this, <laughs> but I have a very full belly also full of ice cream. Yeah, because we went to the very best ice cream shop in the whole entire universe. And what could possibly make it the very, very best ice cream shop? You might be wondering. Well, here's the deal. Their ice cream's good. Actually, it's great. Can't lie. But here's the thing. We live in this place that has an ice cream shop on every single corner, but there's exactly one we will go to. And why is that? Because they, hands down, have the very best, best, best customer service ever. I'm going to tell you the one little thing they do that, as far as I'm concerned, makes them the best. You know how when you're eating ice cream and you get so, so, so thirsty? Well, get this. The It's either the manager or the owner. I'm not sure who it is. He just walks around with a pitcher of water and little cups, and he just goes around from customer to customer, and he just pours you water. It's as simple as that. You don't have to buy water. You don't have to get up and go out to your car and get the bottle of water that you have sitting out there. He just offers you free water. Such a simple gesture that makes that ice cream shop number one in terms of service and creates such a loyal customer and fan base. I think I've now figured out where you're going with this. Yay! I knew it would come full circle. It always does. <laughs> that is a great lead-in for today's show where we're going to be talking about starting and growing a service business. Now, if you've ever started or if you've ever thought about starting a service business, and I know I have, I've started thought about starting a painting business. I've thought about starting a landscaping business, moving business. I've thought about starting lots of service businesses. And here's the thing. Every time I think about it, the first thing that comes to mind is, how am I going to compete with all the competition out there? It, all these businesses are very low barrier to entry businesses. And so there's a lot of competition. There's often a lot of big players in the market. And I think to myself, how am I going to compete? Well, guess what? There's always a way to grow a successful business if you can set yourself apart from the competition. And that's exactly what our guest today has done. We have a guy here named Nick Huber. Nick, along with one of his buddies from college, started their business literally in their college dorm room. They started a company called Storage Squad, 
And it's a company focused on picking up, delivering, and storing students' stuff over the summer when they're out of college. Now, they essentially started this business with no money and no plan, but they've been incredibly resourceful the entire way. And the cool thing is they've competed against some of the very biggest players in the industry, and they've won at every single turn. And Nick's going to tell us how they've done it. Now, Nick's also going to talk about the struggles of managing a business that requires year-round effort, but literally you only get paid by your customers once or twice a year. Great story. You're going to love this episode, especially if you've ever thought about starting a service business. He also tells this really great story near the end. How hilarious was this? How at the ripe old age of 13, he accidentally invented a new type of landscaping mulch. It wasn't really a good one, but he learned every lesson he needed to know right then and there. Yeah, landscape mulch. That's, I guess, one word for it. (laughs) That was a good story. So if you want more information about Nick, about his business, or about the things we discuss in the show today, check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow14. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow14. Now, before we jump into our episode, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. I own a bunch of rental property. And if you do as well, then this probably sounds familiar. You've got a vacancy, so you list your place on a bunch of websites, Craigslist, PadMapper, Zillow, Facebook. Then you get a bunch of applications for your property via email. Then you use yet another website to screen the applicants, and that's before you even have a tenant in the property. Well, here's a great way to keep everything in one place. Cozy provides property management tools to help you save time. So there's no need for keeping 20 tabs open in your browser. You can list, screen, collect rent, and track expenses and maintenance requests online. And the best part is, it's completely free. Plus, I'm an engineer, so I really appreciate this. Cozy's user interface is simple, intuitive, and pleasing to the eye. So whether you're frustrated with your current property manager or you've been doing everything manually, check out Cozy at Cozy.co and get your time back so you can do more of what matters. Again, that's Cozy.co. Give them a try today. Thank you very much to our sponsor. Okay, now without any further ado, let's bring in Nick Huber from Storage Squad. So let's welcome to the show, Nick Huber. How you doing there, Nick? I'm doing well. Thank you all so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm honored to be on. A little nervous, honestly. So they say if you if you don't get out of your comfort zone, um, you're not doing it right. So I'm having fun. Thank you all. Thanks for being here with us. We're really looking forward to talking to you. And I'm so personally intrigued by this whole idea of Storage Squad, and can't wait to dig more into it. Before we get into how you conceive the business, though, I think if I remember correctly, you had mentioned that you started Storage Squad while you were still in college. Is that accurate? Yeah, between junior and senior year of college, undergrad. No know? kidding. So, so how did where where did your business education come from? Did you go to school to be a business education major? Um, no, not really. So, I studied uh, labor relations in college, which is a mix between HR and business. Ran track. I was along the same path as everyone else, just trying to figure out how I could do the best for myself and get the best job possible. When it kind of fell into my lap of a few opportunities that we ended up chasing down. Exciting. So, so that's the, the kind of the path you took when you were in college. So can you take us through a little bit of your backstory where this whole idea started, where you decided that storage squad would be a good business to start? How'd you get up to that point? 
Yeah, yeah. So I was in the same predicament that a lot of college students are in when I leased my apartment on Craigslist over the summer because I wasn't going to be in town. And so did everybody else in my college town. So obviously, I was going to have a really hard time finding somebody to help me pay the rent when I wasn't in town. So after a couple of weeks of sitting on Craigslist, nobody reaching out, I eventually had someone give me a call and said, hey, Nick, I don't want to rent your apartment over the summer, but my son goes to Cornell and he is looking for a place to put his stuff. The tricky thing is that he doesn't have a car. So can you go get his stuff and put it in your apartment for the summer? And, you know, and I was like, ah, I don't know about this. I, I really like to rent it all summer long. I was paying like $400 a month in rent. And um, eventually I said, yeah, okay, for about $150, I'll go get it all, put it in my dorm or in my apartment. So I went and got it. Turned out to be a lot more stuff. Luckily, I had a 1999 Cadillac DeVille, a very big car that I bought from my grandmother with a huge trunk. So I fit all of his stuff in. Um, it took me an hour or so of lugging up and down these stairs. It was really hot. I remember it being pretty miserable, but I put it all in my dorm and then I, I collected the $150 and I was like, okay, what now? Um, I can't rent this apartment. Um, there's nothing else I can do. So the first thing that I did was tell all my friends, everybody in my network, that I was going to now do pickup and delivery storage from my apartment if, when they were going home. So I uh, sent out mess- emails to the track team. I you know, went to, I had some friends in sororities and fraternities. I pitched what I was doing and how I was going to save them money over the big company in town. And uh, before I knew it, I was running around like crazy picking stuff up and storing it in my apartment. And uh, before I knew it, my, my whole room was full. I was out of space, but people kept calling. Um, so I ran to my friend's house in College Town. He's actually where I was moving the next year. Um, his name is Dan. He's still my partner, uh, best man at my wedding to this day. Um, we were both on the track team together, good friends. I went up to him and I, I knew that his house that he lived had a basement. And um, so I went to him and I said, Dan, Dan, like, this is what this is what I'm doing. And he loved it. Like, he got so excited. He pumped me up. He said, Nick, I want to be a part of this. And he had um, the second biggest vehicle on in <laughs> campus. He had a 1997 Buick LeSabre um, that was even bigger than mine. So Those it was a match made in heaven. Cars. Whoa, <laughs> you're not messing around there. Yeah. So so we before we knew it, we were running around like crazy, um, put, putting up flyers, um, you know, advertising for pickup and delivery storage. And we filled um, his room. We filled my room. We filled the basement of the house that we were moving. We actually rented two more rooms from two other guys who weren't going to be in town over the summer. We locked everything up. We ended up with about 50 customers. Um, we broke even about on rent on our rooms and maybe even made a little bit of money. And, and we were just running around like crazy during finals week uh, picking up stuff. So, so just to summarize awesome. this for our listeners, basically Storage Squad is uh, evolved into a company that does pickup, delivery, storage. And it started because you were trying to rent your apartment and some guy called you and asked you if you could store his son's stuff there over the summer. And so you just went, you picked it up, and that one thing led to you doing it again and again and again. And that's where the business came from? Yeah, I got to find the person who called me and send him a thank you note because, yes, my entire life changed that day that that call happened. Wow. Okay. And so just for our listeners, where were you going to school? What were you studying? I was at Cornell University in upstate New York, Ithaca. And to this day, my entire social network back in high school thinks I went to school in New York City because they don't understand New York geography. But yeah, so I was studying labor relations. I was studying a little, a mix between business and kind of human resource management. And I was, 
you know, run a track. And actually it's funny because that, that was right during the peak of track season that all that happened. So me and Danny, we have very vivid memories of at the Ivy League championships, which is during finals week, we were about to get in the blocks to run the hurdles and we were answering customer service calls like telling people that, you know, we'd be back in three days ready to pick up their stuff, basically. <laughs> so so literally you're a year from finishing college and a phone call kind of sets you in a direction that you then go for what we'll talk about this, but for many, many years to come. Absolutely. And and so when it was all done, Danny and I sit down, we take a breath. We had just had a good time and, and really kind of worked hard at this and, and we had big dreams about it. Um, so we kind of sat down and looked at each other and said, okay, so we have one more year at an Ivy league school. If we're going to try to make a go at this, we have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to really kind of push it because if we just sit back and, and try to do a little bit more and maybe pick up a couple more students the next year, we're going to end up the opportunity cost of, of what we could earn and, and kind of get on with our life is going to be too high. So we're not going to be able to start this business. So we sat down, made a pack together. We're going to be 50, 50 partners. Let's get after it and try to make this business as big as we possibly can, as fast as we possibly can and see what happens. Cool. So what were the next steps? Did you write a business plan or did you say, let's just start finding customers and figure out what to do with their stuff? Yeah. So the, the, the thing is, we weren't the only company doing this. There were several companies. There were several companies in our town. There was a big company that got about 1,500 customers every year right in Ithaca. Um, there were a, a nationwide company that had just been bought by U-Haul to do this. So the first thing we did was we dove in and studied all of those companies. We called them playing customers. We looked at their websites. We figured out exactly how they all worked on every city. And we, and we said, okay, what can we do a little bit better? And it turns out, luckily, it was really the first year that everybody had an iPhone in their pocket. It was the first year that we could communicate faster. All of our competitors were running around with clipboards and we're like, okay, we think we can make this business a little bit better. So we started to put in some uh, systems to make it just try to build a better business, right? We took bits and pieces from all these different companies that we liked and, and uh, found the storage squad domain and, and tried to make a plan of how many schools we were going to go to and how we we're going to do it. And what did that initial plan look like? Do you remember as far as how many schools, how many states, kind of what were your numbers kind of in your whole dream, in your whole dreaming phase, like back in the very beginning when you were envisioning? So we knew we had to set goals. And if we didn't hit a goal, then it was going to be unfair for us to ask each other to not get jobs and go on and move with our lives. So we set a 250 customer goal the next year. So this this year in our dorm, we got a hundred or about 50 customers stored in our basement. The next year, we really wanted to get 250 to make it worth it. So my friend Danny had a first cousin at University of Illinois. He had a best friend at University of Iowa. And I had a good friend at Indiana University, all Big Ten schools. So we said, okay, these are the schools we're going to launch at. We took out a little bit of student loan money. We bought four cargo vans on Craigslist for very cheap, like $1,500 a piece. Um, and we uh, just set up our systems put these cargo vans in these cities. We convinced our friends uh, that, that it would work you know, financially for them to, to do it. And then um, we, we basically just tried to figure it out as we went. So, okay, I'm trying to get my head around this. This is amazing. You're still in your junior year of college. You decide it's time to start this business, but you're going to do it while you're in your senior year of college. And rather than just focusing on your location, you're like right out of the gates. You're going to expand and you start in different cities and you call your buddies in these different states. You buy cargo vans and you're going to get these 250 customers. 
where at this point, where are you thinking you're going to store their stuff? I mean, were you going into your other friends' dorm rooms or what was the plan from there? This is yeah, we got creative. We got creative. We hit the ground and, and just tried to find places to store the stuff. I mean, we in one place, we stored it in a, in a, in a small retail place that was vacant. And another place we stored it in a, a farmer had a nice pole barn that he would rent out a piece of it for us. So we just got really creative on, on and we really resourceful because we didn't have any money. We didn't want to bring on financial backing. Um, we just wanted to try to uh, get as many customers as possible. If we didn't get enough, we were going to go get jobs. Danny had just done a, an internship in Washington, D.C. I had an offer to go work for Coca-Cola in California. So we knew that we had to just try to get as many customers as possible and figure everything else out as we went. So what was that first? When was the first time you decided, OK, we can't keep storing stuff? in our dorm room or in our basement. We can't keep driving things around in, in my old Cadillac or, or his old car. When did you finally decide we need to like, we have to start formalizing this and, and actually doing things more business-like? Yeah, I think Danny and I were smart enough to do a lot of things right in the early early on. First of all, we were very open and communicated um, our goals with each other and what we wanted to make of the business and what we wanted to do with it um, and how we formalized our relationship and what we were going to focus on and what we were going to bring to the table. And and yeah, we knew from the beginning that it wasn't scalable to store uh, stuff in each other's in, in dorm rooms and drive around in our vehicles. So we started to plan. We built a website. We built a system for tracking orders. We built a uh, you know, a way for customers to sign up and pick appointments and then a way for us on the ground or our employees on the ground to kind of manage their schedules. And and because it's logistically a, a nightmare of a business like you have students in all different dorms all over campus. They got different. They all have different things to store. We had to figure out how much we were going to charge, how we were going to make the invoices, how they were going to pay, how they were going to schedule, how we were going to organize the stuff in the warehouses. And then after the end of the summer, you got to figure out how to get all that stuff organized and back to all those students. So it was a, like, people ask us all the time, like, what do we do in the off season? And, and you guys only work two weeks a year. Um, well, yeah, we're preparing for the Super Bowl, right? It's like, we have so many part-time employees. Um, so um, we, we, we joke around all the time that like we make our money in December when nothing's going on, because that's when we plan and try to make our business better. So, so from the beginning, we took it pretty seriously. So, so where was that first offsite storage place? And where did you get that first truck and when did you hire that first employee how did how did it go from because that's that's a big step going from from a dorm room to actually renting space and going from your own car to to somebody else's car and then hiring that first person that's it, it just feels like it, it's a step function business is often a step function but it feels like that's a huge first step yeah, we 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 got like I said, we got resourceful. It was just kind of running around town, grinding, trying to figure out a place to go. Craigslist was a big bonus for us. We found our vehicles on Craigslist. We found our our space for lease on Craigslist. My local, a couple of local realtors kind of felt bad for us when we knocked on their door and said, "I might try to help these guys out and find them a space." So because landlords didn't want us because we were only there for the summer, so um, it was mostly us trying to sell them on let us let us pay some of your property taxes in store for the summer. <laughs> Okay, great. So you have this, you have this plan in place. You're with Danny. The two of you have decided you're going to get resourceful. You're going to uh, figure out all these places for temporary storage solutions, so on and so forth. How many customers did you end up with that first year? 252. So you, you had the goal of 250 yeah. and you went yep. over it by two. So it was game on. It so is we really did not, time to so, grow, time to expand. So we did not apply for jobs. We did not update our resumes. We we went 
after Storage Squad full time. So then we graduated. Um, that's when I had met my wife. We finished up school and we, we passed all of our classes and it finished our track and field careers. Then we got full time serious about Storage Squad and basically lived on ramen noodles for two years. I don't know how my wife is, is, you know, how she stayed with me, but I'm so grateful because I mean, we couldn't spend a dollar. We had no money. We were putting every dollar we had back into more cargo vans and more boxes and more warehouses to go to more places. So from there, it was just try to try to go to two or three new schools every year. So the big game changer for us, Danny and I moved to Chicago. Um, his, his great uncle had passed away and left a, a state, a house that kind of need cleaned up. So we lived in that house rent free for nine months. We painted it. We did a lot of stuff for the family while we grew the business during the day and lived on a super tight budget. So, um, and that's when we made the plan that we're going to Boston because Boston are, is where the students are. So my wife had just got an internship, um, in Boston. She lived there. Um, I was visiting a lot and, and it was, it just made the obvious sense like Boston, a beast of a city. We don't know how we're going to find warehouse space, but there's 200,000 students in Boston, right? So we're going there we're going to figure it out. So me and Danny get on Craigslist. We get a box truck that's for sale on the South side of Chicago for $2,000. We drive down there. We test drive the truck. We buy it. Two days later, we load it with equipment and I drive it across the country from uh, Chicago to Boston. And I sleep on my wife's couch with her. Like I crashed in with her roommates um, to live with them for six months while I launched our Boston branch. So that that's kind of the, the big, the big shift to uh, growing the business was we knew we had to get to some of these big cities, but it was intimidating, a little bit stressful. Uh, but, but we knew we had to do it. Excellent. And Boston's an amazing, obviously, like you said, there's just, there are the, the numbers are there, right? I'm also, this is a, t- a tiny bit of a tangent, but I'm just curious because I think this is uh, just an interesting side point for our listeners. So Boston is awesome because of the numbers. However, Boston is just an expensive place in general, right? So I'm just curious, did that weigh into your decision, making it all just kind of like the overall cost of living and the overall expenses that would come in going to a city like Boston? Absolutely. So we knew we had to get super resourceful to find space to store the stuff um, and labor, like finding people to help us work was also going to be very difficult. Um, so we basically looked all over Craigslist. We were looking at Google Maps, looking at warehouse space that we looked that looked broken down, basically, and trying to find on the tax deeds who owned it and if we could possibly rent it from them. Like we had to get really creative with finding warehouse space in Boston. But Tufts is there, Harvard's there, MIT's there, Northeastern, BU, Brandeis. Like that was the place to go. So ended up tying up tying down a warehouse with some goals. And I went there in I think February first, and from February first to April first, it was all marketing. I was out. I was handing out flyers. I was writing sidewalk chalk on the ground. Um, I was just out all day, every day, just trying to figure out how can we get as many customers as possible to make this worth it. So this is just as grassroots as it gets, right? I mean, you're just in the very, very beginning. You are just, you're, you're talking to all your buddies in all these different cities. When you realize it's going to work, you bring it back um, with Danny. You move to Chicago. And after that, you, you go full speed ahead in Boston and you're like, like physically on the ground, like sidewalk chalk, handing out flyers. Did you have other types of marketing as well? Or were you really in the beginning, just full on the two of you? Uh, grassroots, just doing it by word of mouth. Exactly right. I was in Boston, but Danny was in Syracuse and State College, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Like we were all over the place. So, um, and we didn't have any money and we knew that paying for Google AdWords and spending this money on non-targeted marketing was kind of silly when we knew exactly where our customers lived. We knew where they walked. We knew where they went to classes. 
So we just had to get out and touch our customers. Like we had to get out in front of them and they had to see the whites of our eyes. And so we didn't spend a dollar on marketing. I mean, we did it ourselves. And um, the, I mean, people laugh about the sidewalk chalk now, but um, I think that's what catapulted my business. I think really. I believe that, it. That's mm-hmm. really cool. So let me ask you a question. You now have multiple schools that you're doing this at. But this isn't the type of business where you get a customer today, you get a customer that needs to be moved tomorrow, next week, the following month. Basically, all of your customers are going to be looking for you to pick up their stuff right around the same time. And then all Mm -hmm. of your customers are going to be looking for you to kind of return their stuff around the same time. So you're managing businesses in multiple cities that are very time sensitive. So how are you organizing and coordinating Basically, like the end of the school year, the beginning of the school year um, in all these different cities and all these different schools when there's only two of you. Yeah, so um, we we did a really good job communicating, um, I mean, communicating our mission and motivating some key employees to help us along the way. But what ended up happening in a lot of our cities, and this is the year where. Um, we tripled in size that year. In Boston, we were hoping for 800 customers and we got like 1,200. Our warehouse was too small. Everything was crazy. So it, it, Danny ended up flying in. We ended up having his, Danny's brother flew in. Like we were just, we were really kind of in, up, like in trouble because all these customers, like you said, they needed it at the same time. We could only be in so many places at once. So normally we have two or three guys on a crew driving around town, picking up stuff. Well, it was me on a crew all day by myself. And it was my wife answering customer service calls after she got home from work. And it was when we got back to the warehouse, all of our crew was so exhausted from the day's work that we had to send them home because we couldn't risk them not showing up the next day. So we would sit at the warehouse at seven o'clock PM with seven full trucks outside that needed to be emptied by the morning. And me and Danny would just unload these trucks by ourselves until about 3 AM. And then like we would walk across the street to McDonald's with some baby wipes and like clean up a little bit so that we didn't smell in elevators the next day. And and we would try to get like half an hour sleep on, on an air mattress in these grody warehouses in these broken down warehouses and, and not the great parts of Boston. And, um, like we look back at it now and we, we love it. Like we love those days, but it was definitely a grind. <laughs> Absolutely. So after that, so that first summer is 800 was your goal and you ended up with 1200. I, did I hear that correctly? That was just in Boston. That was just in Boston. So I think that was 2012. So we maybe skipped one season. So, um, but yeah, we just grew really fast and it was really, really stressful every year, but it was what we had to do because we only got paid once a year. Right. So if it's, if it's comfortable and, and you get enough customers and you, you look back and it wasn't like scary, Oh my gosh, how can we get this done? Then we hadn't quite done enough to, to do the things that we want to do the next year. Cool. And so that was Boston. So now you're in, you're in New York, you're in Boston. Did you mention Chicago? Um, yeah, a couple of big 10 schools that we had picked up and, and we were, we were just any, anywhere where we thought we could hire somebody, we would, we would open a branch at and, that point. And as you're scaling, are you consciously thinking about how you're going to scale? Did you ever think, huh, maybe we should franchise this or maybe we should license the name and let other people handle it? Or from day one, you were like, no, we're going to keep doing this ourselves. We're going to go to more schools and more states. And we're just going to we're going to manage this ourselves and keep everything in house. Yeah. So the, our competitors, our main competitors out there were con- like just middlemen contracting with moving companies. Like they made a deal with a moving company that did all their labor and they were just a website for people to sign up. And we really took pride in the fact that 
we were this, the same people that you called on the phone. were going to be the people showing up to pick up your stuff. So we could provide so much better service. Like a customer could call us and 20 minutes later, they could be on one of our schedules because instead of running around with a clipboard, we were running around with a tablet that we could update schedules on and, and do things a lot faster and more efficient. And also we just got way more volume. Our prices are really low. They've always been really low and we've just got a ton of volume. So when our competitors were showing up at a dorm and picking up one box and then driving to another dorm and picking up another student, we would show up at one dorm and there would be 30 students on the sidewalk waiting for us to show up. So we could load a truck in two hours, whereas what took our competitors, you know, eight to fill. So we, we just found a way to charge a lower price be ultra efficient and, and kind of utilize the technology that was just at, in 2012, just becoming like in everybody's pocket. Right. So that's, that's, that was a huge advantage for us. And, and another just big blessing for us was that the, the customer base was expanding massively. So between 2011, when we launched and today, there are double the international students at some of these Ivy League schools and in Boston because the, the, the colleges started needing more tuition. They, they started like wanting to increase their endowments and started having a ton of international students come into these colleges. And an international student was our target customer, right? They didn't have a vehicle. They didn't know. They didn't have a way to get their stuff to, to storage. Um, and, and also student, students started traveling more to go to school. Like California students would go to school in Boston. So the out-of-state and international students just skyrocketed. So we didn't take a single customer from our competitors. It was just a growing market. And it was just such a blessing that we got in at that time. Wow. And so where, so that was, that was a few different states. Where are you today? How did, how, how's that scaling gone since 2012-13? Yeah. So, you know, the next year we got 5,000 total customers. The year after that, we got 7,500. And I think it was in last year we had 10,000 customers. So wow. we were at, we're in 11 states. We're the contracted storage provider at George Washington, at Penn State, at Brandeis, at Emory. That means we have a relationship with the school and they kind of promote us and we can go in the dorms to do early deliveries and like make it really convenient for our students. So, um, and, and as we've went, we've also gotten um, hired some executive help on our management team that are phenomenal at helping us, help, helping me and Danny live normal lives now, especially since I have two kids and, and so on. That's awesome. Okay. I want to talk about a couple different things that you just mentioned. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Carol. No, that's great. I'm ready to go. So first you talked about getting exclusive contracts with a couple of these schools. How did you do that? What mm-hmm. did you, what, 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 how does that come about? Yeah, that was about sales. I mean, we bugged them and bugged them and bugged them. And then we got in front of them, shook their hands, put a PowerPoint up about how amazing our company was and said, hey, look, these other companies are using clipboards and our customers get a text message when we're on the way with a link to track where our truck is. Like, And, and then they finally said, OK, well, you must charge double what the competitors charge. And we'd say... No, actually, we're, we're more affordable. Like we're more affordable. So once we, once they were open to switching providers or signing on a new company, it was a pretty easy sell, but it was me and Danny getting in front of these people and going to see the executives and cutting through the bureaucracy sometimes of, we don't know who's going to make this decision and we're not sure. And it was definitely frustrating. And I remember. Um, say, uh, we, we'd go in, we'd pitch a school and me and Danny would sit back and it would be a month before they made a decision. And finally that email would come through and it would say like, you have been selected to be the, st- the storage provider. And we would just ha- have a big celebration. It was, it was amazing. So that's awesome. And I, I imagine like once that happens, your, your marketing costs and your penetration in that market just has to skyrocket because suddenly you're like, 
you're being endorsed by the school and you don't need to go and convince anybody that you're reputable. You don't need to convince people that you can get it done. You don't need to convince people that your prices are good. Basically, the school is already doing all of that, uh, that reputation stuff for you. Absolutely. That's what kind of uh, pours rocket fuel on a branch is when you can get a school to put their name behind you and you go from 600 customers to 1200 customers in a year. And, and that's what really allowed us to kind of break through from um, always be pinching pennies to actually build a profitable, scalable business that is that is healthy. And we can hire good management and we can put systems in place that that make the customer experience even better and, and build some of our own software. And so, yeah, getting those school contracts was absolutely huge for our brand and, and building the business. That's very cool. Yeah, really cool. You talked a little bit a couple minutes ago about um, you brought in marketing help on your executive team. Can you take us through a little bit more of what your overall organizational structure looks like? Because you're big enough now that it's clearly not just you and Danny, I would suspect. Mm -hmm. So kind of what does that whole management team look like? And then how does that flesh out in each of your individual locations? Yeah. So we found somebody who had started, worked, it was actually a friend of uh, Danny's brother who we flew in to kind of save our butt one, one year when things got crazy. Um, his name's Chris and he, he looked at our systems and he's like, guys, I can help you guys make this a lot better. And so he jumped in instantly and we're like, okay, show us what you can do. Show us what you can do. We don't really have any money yet, but show us what you can do. And, and he started bringing a ton of great ideas to the table and we're like, wow, this guy's good. So very soon we started compensating him well and putting him in charge of a lot of awesome stuff. And he has really helped us um, set up the systems. And with he, he's a hiring HR guy. And, and our problem is always finding the employees. Like the customers are coming, but having reliable employees that can drive these trucks and know how to do things is is a key. And Chris has been a phenomenal asset as far as helping us kind of set systems in place to where I. Um, so our system right now is me and Danny are still owning the business. Um, Chris is a is a management hire that we have. We have another full time employee. We have two full time employees that do customer service and admin stuff and helping us all over the place. And then aside from the six of us, it's. It's um, 350 part-time employees when the busy season comes still. So it's still a challenging business. Wow. And is your customer support, your customer sign up, your customer service, is that all centralized? So if I were to go to a school today and, and see, oh, Storage Squad, I need to call them to help with my kids. Would I be calling the same number as somebody whose kids go to a different school or is it very? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say the key for us and, and we struggled for a really long time with our systems on, on the ground. And it was always, we can't find good people. We can't find good people. And I think this is just a lesson that any business can take on. And something that took us so long to learn is that as soon as we started simplifying the job for certain employees, the training got better. The uh, turnover didn't cripple us as much. So at first, like we were running around on the ground and we had a tablet with a checklist on the back of it with 23 things to do when you needed to service a customer. And so all of our employees were confused. They weren't set up to succeed. Our customers were having a poor experience because everybody was doing a little bit of everything. Like you said, like our customer service was getting done by the guy on the ground. He was making the schedule changes. He was communicating with customers. He was writing the invoices. So like this was part of Chris too. And, and as soon as we simplified the job and made it say, okay, that driver needs to do five things really well. If he can do those five things, we can scale this business. And so we took customer service off his 
plate. We took scheduling and made one person in the whole company do all of our scheduling and a customer service team do all the customer service for the whole company. And like the, the billing was done by one person. Like we, instead of right drawing up the invoice on the tablet, he would just take photos of the orders so that somebody else who was really good at making invoices could do that. So we kind of found things that we could specialize people in and make them really good at what they do best. And then things got really a lot easier for us to grow the company and, and manage it remotely and, and deal with these logistical challenges that we, that we deal with every day. Right. And you're, you're talking about managing it remotely and having all of these different service people in all of these different locations that do like the five things, for example, really well. Is there, do you have like one overall person in each city or how, do, how is that set up? Like there's, there's all of you at headquarters and then how's it go from there? Absolutely. We have a student manager that's committed to us on in each site, but he's part-time at each camp. So at each campus, you have one person who's part-time. That's cool. Okay. And it's a student as well. So that's a great opportunity, like a great resume builder, a great internship, that type of thing. We've hired several, all the people in our management team are ex-students. Like one of our full-time guys we hired because he was our operations manager at Penn state and he did a really good job for us. But yeah, they, they get, they actually get real world experience on their resume instead of just, um, instead of just, Oh, I went in and did a, a big corporate internship and pushed paper around. These kids are hiring people. Like they're figuring out problems. They're making schedules and telling when their friends when they have to get out of bed to get on the truck and dealing with people not showing up to work. So we kind of we give them the tools to succeed, but we're also kind of throwing them to the fire and they're learning a ton while they go. This is cool. So what a great way to scale. So I'm fascinated by this. So you've got your management team and then you've got your operations manager who's a student at each school. Is that student often hiring other students to be the movers, to be the drivers? Yep. So you've got an army of students running this thing on, on the ground in each one. And they're great advocates. They're marketing for each other. It's grassroots growing your business. They're telling their friends. This is cool. It's, it's a great, really it's cool. a great setup because the students are, they're all going to go make 50, 60 grand a year the next year. And, and they're working for us for $15 an hour and doing work that they enjoy being around their friends and they're clean cut. They're providing good customer service. Great. They're excellent ambassadors of our brand. So while our competitors are kind of hiring movers and all this, all the, you know, norms that go along with movers and trying to find movers, we're, we're hiring students who already know their way around campus. They already know how to communicate with the parents and the students. And it just makes the service so much more enjoyable for everybody who interacts with our business. That's- and it's a self-perpetuating system, right? Because you're never running out of students. There's always going to be fresh students coming in. So when yeah. the ones who don't want to stay on forever, you've always got new ones who are willing to do it. So it's it's uh, kind of infinitely scalable, I think, right? Yeah, the Cornell football captain it was our operations manager, and he graduated and went and got an awesome job. And I remember being his reference on the phone saying how awesome he was. <laughs> and then he passed us on to a sophomore football player who is awesome. just, as, just as eager to, to get involved. So right. presumably you need to make some decisions about when you, when you expand and you scale, you need to decide which schools and states you're going to go to, which ones you're going to stay away from because you can't do – you can't be everything to everybody all the time. How do you decide what's next, where you're going to go, what schools you're going to focus on, what schools you're going to avoid? Do you have metrics or, or heuristics that you use to kind of figure out how to scale and, and expand the business? 
Yeah, exactly right. It's all about, it's a math problem of how many international students are there. We know that uh, female students are more likely to use our service than male students and students from California are more likely to use our student, our, our, our service than in-state students. So we can look up the analytics of each school and kind of figure out where we want to target. Uh, but we've been burned. We've had a couple schools that just didn't work out and we just didn't get the customers. They had a strong competitor. Um, it's a tough business as well. So um, it's definitely, we're starting to take pride in our ability to say no to opportunities now. Like everybody's like, why don't you just keep growing, keep growing, keep growing? Well, we have a really healthy business right now that is building a great brand and we have our markets that we really thrive in. And so um, now it's on, I think, to uh, getting more school contracts, growing our our presence at certain schools, um, fine-tuning our systems, fine-tuning our service, and then expanding to other, you know, related services like moving and stuff like that. Oh, so that's that's really interesting. Okay, so I, I was going to ask, like, are, have you figured out some related services or some some side businesses that that you can go into that you can continue to grow and and capture more revenue from the same customers? And it sounds like moving is going to be one of your uh, one of your next businesses. Yeah, so we we launched recently a moving company in Boston where we're kind of utilizing our our vehicle that we already have, our crew that we already have, our employees that we already have, our brand that we already have, and focusing on uh, you know local moves in Boston. So that's going to be a that, but that's a whole other business. So yep. it's a it's a difficult it's it's a difficult balance as an owner of where are you going to put your resources and and are you going to risk the main business for a, a new sure. business? So I would say we're still pretty focused on. Uh, student storage, but moving is is definitely a future avenue, and we're exploring that right now. And self storage as well. We opened, uh, we developed, and built a self storage facility in one of our markets as well uh, to kind of diversify into real estate and and kind of think about the future and where we want to go with our brand. That's awesome. I, are you using that storage facility for the storage of the the stuff that you're contracted to to hold? No, so it's just a, a plain self storage facility that um, we kind of went in with a different model of. Uh, looking at the inefficiencies of the self-storage business. And one of those inefficiencies that we saw was that they had a full-time manager sitting there all the time. So we thought we, with our logistical, you know, systems that we have in place, we thought managing a self-storage facility couldn't possibly be that hard. So we, we built a facility that we managed without a manager and cut, cut out a lot of overhead and provide an even better service to our customers with some technology. So, but no, we don't store our student stuff in those self-storage facilities. They're, they're kind of side-by-side businesses. I myself have actually kind of stepped away from the student storage business and Chris and Danny are running that. And I am focusing on developing and managing self-storage facilities. Wow. Okay. So. We, we could probably have an entire other, in fact, we can, we, <laughs> now that's another yeah, whole we'll episode. Say, we will do another whole yeah, episode We'll, we'll, we'll send you over with uh, Brandon and David to talk about that on the real estate show. Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Fundrise, that's no longer the case. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Fundrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. 
Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit fundrise.com slash BP business. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise.com slash BP business. Small business owners wear a lot of hats and While some hats are really great, others like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, yeah, not so great. So that's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can even get direct access to certified HR experts too. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. You can do it in less than 10 minutes. And if you're thinking, oh, I already work with tools like say QuickBooks, well, get this. Gusto can integrate with those platforms so you can keep everything in one place all online. So listen up for this offer. Because you listen to Bigger Pockets Business, you get three months free when you run your first payroll on Gusto. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash BPB, like Bigger Pockets Business. Again, that's gusto.com slash BPB. So what is next for the for the for storage squad? So uh, is it going to be building out related businesses? Is it going to be continuing to grow into new markets? How big do you want to get? Have you thought about this or are you just taking things as they come? Yeah, so we've built up something really awesome now. Um, our business is really healthy and, and me, Danny and Chris, we sit down a lot and we think like, we got to set some goals and some plans and, and what does everybody want out of this? And, and it's a good problem to have because we have opportunities thrown at us all the time. Should we do pickup and delivery container storage like, uh, you know, the pods or should we do more moving branches or should we just continue to nurture our healthy business, which is definitely the plan. So we're going to go to a couple new schools a year, I think, and try to get more contracts and just to keep healthy growth and, and try to not mess up what we've what we've worked so hard to build. That's very cool. So can I ask you a couple of questions about the financials? Yeah, um, sure. So, and I'm obviously I'm not going to ask you how much money you guys make or anything like that, but just to give our listeners an idea, um, we talked to some other businesses about margins, meaning for every dollar that you charge your customers that you bring in in revenue, how much do you actually end up keeping after you pay for storage and employees and vehicles and all of that stuff? Do you, do you have a good idea of what your margins look like? Or are you keeping 20 cents out of every dollar, 80 cents out of every dollar? Yeah. So we take pride in our ability to run a very lean business. Like we don't have any offices. We don't like we buy all of our vehicles used and affordable. We're very good purchasers as far as warehouses go. And we, you know, around 20% is a margin that we shoot for as as far as a healthy range that we're happy with. And any idea how that compares to your competitors? I think, I think it's probably a little better, but it's a tough business. There's yeah. a lot of new com- competitors coming on to this, to the scene. Like we have new competitors launching in every city. So, um, 
if you're listening to this and you're competitor, our margins are very slim. Very slim. <laughs> not, don't even bother. Totally not it, worth it. It's, it's a really good reminder to all of our listeners who I, it, it's too often, I, I think people that are new to business or new to entrepreneurship, they, they often forget that, yeah, just because you might be making $10,000 or $100,000 or a million mm-hmm. or a hundred million dollars, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're actually taking that much money home. So for every, every $100,000 you guys make, you're actually walking away with 20000 yeah, so I'm I'm still living an extremely frugal life. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I have time now to do the things I want to do, which that's why I'm so excited about what this business has done for me because I can spend time with my family, I can chase other avenues, I can I can I have a freedom of never having to really well, I wouldn't say never, but I, I don't have to go get a job and, and trade my time for money. So so it's it's a it's been a beautiful experience for me, but I'm not a hundred millionaire and I don't think I ever will be. <laughs> okay. Well, with that in mind. What what could you have done differently, do you think, from the beginning to have made this business even more successful? If you had to start over today, let's go back to 2011, and you're starting this business over again, is there anything you would have done differently that here we are eight years later where you would have said, okay, we are twice as successful or five times more successful? Or are you pretty pretty convinced that the, the way you've grown and the way you've done everything is pretty optimal? So I think we could have done it a lot faster. Like we, we learned through trial and error. So we, we made a lot of mistakes and then we would go back to the drawing board and, and try again and go back to the drawing board and try again. And I think if I were to start the business now, knowing what I know now, we could have built the business so much faster. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I have very many regrets because it was a really fun journey. And, 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 you know, I think it was a lot less risky doing it the way we did it as well, like really bootstrapping it and not trying to grow too fast. So, yeah, I think I, I'd have to ask Danny that question. That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like the way you did it was also a lot of fun, right? I mean, yeah. you've got, I'm, I'm loving your story about when, and you'll always have those war stories to tell about when you were, uh, the two of you unpacking boxes until three in the morning and then wiping off with wet wipes, you know, so you <laughs> could get started after a couple hours of sleep. Do you have any other really good struggle stories? Because it does sound like you've got this awesome, healthy, wonderful business going on now, but we haven't talked a lot about like any of those big struggles along the way. Is there anything, a struggle you can share so other people can avoid that stuff later? Yeah. It's the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I mean, there were, there are times where we're so elated and so excited and our phones ding in every five seconds with a new customer sign up. And we're just like, Oh my gosh, this is going amazing. Like, I'm so glad we're doing this. And then I vividly remember one morning in Boston I, it was in the middle of the, pulling those all-nighters and trying to figure things out. And a, a customer called me in the middle of the night and because and, we were doing customer service at like 3 a.m. because that's the only time that we could catch up on our customer service. And they're like, I have a flight that leaves for the Boston Logan Airport to China in three hours. And my passport is in that box. And I was like, oh, my, oh my gosh. So we, me and Danny go to the box. We dig out the box. We get the passport and the, and the passport files. And I hop in my car and drive to the airport and meet her at the gate. And I'm like handing her her passport so that she can get her ticket and get on the plane. Um, that was a pretty fun moment. And the, cool, and the cool thing is that your competitors, your big competitors who probably charge a lot more money than you do, never would have done that. Not in a yeah. million years. Yeah. You're cert- I mean, talk about setting yourselves apart in terms of service, right? And, and when, it, when you think about it, it all boils down to you're doing a service industry. But you said something to me. What was the quote you said to me uh, before we got on the call, Nick? It was something about, about doing, doing things really well or something in a service industry. What was that? 
we know that we're not reinventing the wheel. We were, there were thousands of other competitors doing exactly what, or not thousands, but there were a lot of other companies doing exactly what we were doing. I, I just think that entrepreneurship, we kind of idolize the, the Shark Tank and Elon Musk and the Steve Jobs. And, and we kind of think that you got to have a new world changing idea. And I, I just totally disagree with that because you can do common things uncommonly well. That's the quote. I think it's a Rockefeller quote. You can just do common things uncommonly well, and you can start a business doing exactly what your competitors are doing. Just do it a little bit better. Just find a way to carve out a little piece of the pie. So I think if there's one message that I could send with entrepreneurs, it's just that, um, you know, you, you don't, don't fall into the trap that is the entrepreneurship culture where you're trying to raise a bunch of venture capital and you're trying to do something totally different. Just start small, start local, and just do something that somebody else is already doing and find a way to carve out a little piece of your pie with just a, a short-term goal of not having a, a nine-to-five job anymore and getting your time back. And and that's what Danny and I did, and, and it was so fun to do that. It was hard. Um, I, I I could tell a couple more war stories if you guys want, but Absol- it, it was absolutely. It, well, the emotional the emotional roller coaster of this this entrepreneurship is crazy. I mean, I I, I think it was two nights after we delivered the passport. I was sitting in the warehouse, like almost having a mental breakdown because two of my trucks were way behind schedule. Two, two movers didn't show up. I didn't, uh, a guy had just put uh, diesel fuel into a gasoline engine on one of our trucks and it was broken down in the middle of Boston and it was full. We didn't know how to get it back because it was full and broken down. And I just remember having like an emotional breakdown on the street and like crying and calling my wife. And I just wanted to call my mom. I was like, why am I in Boston doing this and taking all these chances and, and, and doing all this and, and being so uncomfortable. But then, you know, three days later, you just realize that it was all worth it. And, 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 you know, Tim Ferriss talks about something that's pretty cool. It's called fear setting. And like, what is the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing? And if you can come to terms with that and you can realize that you're going to be fine, your family's going to eat, you're in America, you have those those, uh, those fallbacks. And, and so when we would have things like a perfect storm of everything going wrong, um, I guess no one was ever injured. So we were so blessed that that didn't happen, but it it just puts it all in perspective of, of the little things in life that people get really, really stressed and worked up about and, and how at the end of the day, we're all, we're all in America and just sitting back and with, with all that. So yep, that's some great big picture thinking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love the whole figure out. And we do this with our kids a lot, which is when, when they're scared of something or when they're, they're apprehensive, just thinking about what is the worst thing that could happen. And and it often puts you in a frame of mind that, Oh, there's no reason I shouldn't be trying things because the worst case outcome really isn't that bad. Unless of course you're my nine-year-old who will generally say, well, you could fall into a volcano um, so, <laughs> and be covered with lava. And that is a pretty yeah, bad thing. Yeah. I can't really argue with lava. Yeah, itself, but but, but you know. other than having that conversation with nine year olds, it, it's it's a great way of really putting things into perspective and and realizing that we should be taking more chances in our lives and our businesses because mm-hmm. oftentimes the worst case outcome isn't nearly as bad when we when we work through it logically. Yeah, and if you think about entrepreneurship in a small way and, and as, as bits and pieces of a small plan, it's, it, you realize that entrepreneurship is not a zero or a one. Um, entrepreneurship, you don't have to just quit your job and go all in on a business. It, it can be, all right, this is something that, you know, I work 40 hours a week. What am I going to do with the other 100 hours in a week? I can, I can start really small, start local, get something going where, you know, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm starting something. I'm trying something, but I'm not risking it all. I love that. I love that quote. Really I, entrepreneurship isn't a zero or a one. I, I love that quote. 
Yeah. All right. Well, with that, Nick, this has been great. And I love all your tactical advice and your, and your just overall big picture advice that you're giving to new entrepreneurs. So thank you for all of that. And I think we want to like start wrapping it up with another little segment of the show that we call four more. Okay. So it's, you're going to reveal a little bit more about yourself, rapid fire style. We're going to ask you four questions and you're just going to tell us the first story that comes to mind. And then the more part of it is where we can find out more about you. Okay. Okay. Jay, you want to take the first one? Uh, Nick, can you tell us about what your first or your worst job was and what lessons did you take from it? Oh, man. If you have time for about a five-minute story, I'd love to uh, tell you how I yeah. got my feet wet in entrepreneurship. So, Please do. So my father worked for a uh, a, a guy in, in, in our small town who owned five or six commercial properties. And um, they had a lawn guy who mowed all the lawns. And one day he got had a heart attack. He was okay. But his doctor basically said, you got to stop mowing these lawns. So And, and so my dad goes into work one day and, and they say, we got to find a new lawn care guy. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he did what any rational person would do. And he volunteered his seventh grade son to take over about 10 hours a week of commercial lawn care. Whoa. So, yeah, so he Whoa. put, <laughs> he, he, he basically, uh, you know, we had a truck, we had a trailer, we had a mower. So he had me hire my mom for $10 an hour. He had me put on a lease schedule. He sat me down at the kitchen table and basically gave me an entrepreneurship 101. How, this is how much you're going to spend. This is how much you're going to make. Like, let's keep a spreadsheet and then go mow. So 95 degrees and sunny. I am, uh, I think I'm 13. It's between seventh and eighth grade year. And I'm used to mowing my family's lawn where I just get out on the mower and I'm mowing. Well, a commercial property, you got to pick up trash first. And I just mow this whole property and the 60 pieces of trash that were in that lawn turned into about 6,000 pieces of trash. Oh. And my father was kind of curious about how his son was oh. doing. He drives by to look and see how his son's doing at this job. He's probably pretty anxious. Um, and he sees just a pile of, like, it literally looked like it snowed in the lawn. There's trash everywhere. <laughs> and he pulls over and he's like, Nick, what are you doing? Nick, what are you doing? You got to pick up oh the trash first. And I remember he was, he was nice to me, but I just had a, I had a breakdown. I was hot. It was sweaty. I was crying. Um, I was young. And, um, and he's, and I said, dad, I quit. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this job anymore. I'm not doing it. And he goes, well, yes, you are doing it. He took me in the truck, turned on the air conditioner, he put some, uh, a towel with some water on it on my neck. And he said, Nick, like this is, this is not going to be easy, but you got to get out and do it. And he gave me many of his pep talks that kind of set me up for success in life. And, and I'm so glad that he made me finish it because I ended up running the business and I ended up firing my mom because she wasn't on the weed eater and hiring a kid in high school to drive me and just learning a little bit about entrepreneurship. And that was my first job. It was very hard. It was the worst job I've ever had, but um, it, I learned a lot from it. You learned a ton. That yeah. is a great story. I love it. Okay. So what's an opportunity along the way that you've said no to? And do you think in retrospect, it was the right decision? Uh, yeah, I think, I think um, not going to get a job was a, uh, something that was so hard for me to say no to, especially when I, you know, I sat down with my parents and I did some goal setting and then I'm like, dad, you know, I think I'm going to try this storage business and, and try to make it something. And he goes, Nick, your friends are getting jobs. Like you just, Chris just got a job in New York city for a hundred thousand dollars a year. And, and, um, you're, you're going to buy a $1,500 cargo van on Craigslist and start moving boxes around. I mean, what is that? That's not why I sent you to college. And, and, um, no, but he was so supportive. I, I say that as kind of a joke, but it was just such a hard decision to, to not do what everybody else was doing and take a chance like that. That's uh, that's awesome. Love that. Okay. So I'm going to take the next question. What is the worst business advice you've ever been given? 
Oh, I think I think it's probably um, start something or, or do a business or start a business that you're passionate about. I think passion. If you if you're going to go after a passion project, I think it's going to be more competitive. I think you're going to be more likely to make emotional decisions that are not necessarily logical or not based on facts. You're, you're more likely to filter information based on what you want to hear. Um, and you're more likely to chase a dream that that maybe just doesn't quite make sense. So I'm all about finding a need, being passionate about entrepreneurship, looking at the market from an unbiased, unemotional viewpoint, finding opportunities, and then clear up time to do what you're passionate about on the side so that it's not a stress of bringing in money. It's not a stress of feeding a family and and um, going, you know, it's it's just so hard when you're trying to turn your passion into a business and and you know, it not only doesn't work out financially, but it also tears you apart emotionally and, and kind of brings you down. So that's a great one. Okay. Here's your fourth question, Nick. What's something you've splurged on that's been totally worth it? Oh, can I flip this around and tell you something about something I did not end up buying that I Go was about it. to? <laughs> so totally, I, yeah. yeah, so my, we, we ran this business in five years for five years in Boston. My wife was there and we had our first son and about three or four weeks after we had our first son, I realized that living in these cheap apartments that are not very nice in Boston was just not something that was scalable. So I had to buy my family a house. So we started looking for real, like met with realtors, started going to see some houses in Boston. We realized that it was going to cost about $750,000 or a million dollars to live there, to buy a house. And it was with no garage. It was 1950s house. It was maybe 20 minutes from anything. It was the property, like it was going to cost about five grand a month just to have this house. And, you know, I got some financial advice and they're like, Nick, you can do it. You can pull the trigger. And my wife were like, okay, should we do it? I don't know. And we decided not to splurge on the house. And instead we, we said, okay, where do we want to live? And because it's not going to be Boston that we're going to raise a family. So my wife's from a small town. I'm from a small town. Neither of those two things made sense. Um, we decided to take the whole company remote. All of us left Boston. Danny went to Chicago and, um, my wife and I went south for winter and, and basically toured different towns and we made a spreadsheet of uh, that uh, what 20% of the stuff that we do brings 80% of our joy. And where can we find that not having to get ourselves in a tight financial spot? So we made a list and it was live music. It was cycling. It was being outdoors. It was having a college environment. It was having a low cost of living. And where can we find that within an hour and a half of an airport and still be in an awesome city to, to raise a family? So we ended up buying a $300,000 house that was way, way bigger and nicer than the house in Boston in, in a town called Athens, Georgia. And, and we moved here a year ago, and I'm so thankful that we did it. That's an awesome reverse splurge. I love, <laughs> love, love that story. That's perfect. And, and I think Carol and I can both say we're fans of Athens, Georgia. We, uh, we actually almost did some investing there a few years back. Um, awesome. Well, if you're in town, let me know. So Absolutely. Definitely. Okay. So that was the four questions. Now let's jump into the more part. Where can our listeners find out more about you and find out more about your business? Yeah. So um, storagequad.com, that's that's my student storage business. But I actually have a little side project where my little brother is starting a business right now. He's doing a lawn care company. And I was mentoring him and I said, you know what? I, I, I wish I had some information like this when I was young. So I started a little blog and a podcast called The Sweaty Startup, where um, I talk about service-based entrepreneurship, doing uh, common things uncommonly well. And I've been writing and, and recording podcasts and interviewing people that, that are just doing businesses that aren't necessarily flashy, but are low risk and, and can get you out of that nine to five. So that it, so it's called The Sweaty Startup. You can also email me if you want to get involved in any way. You want to talk to me, you want to ask me some questions, you work for Storage Squad, email me, nick at sweatystartup.com. Um, I'd love to uh, you know, help you with anything that you're working on if, and give you a little piece of advice if, awesome. if it might help. And it's the Sweaty Startup Podcast? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. 
Love your story. Love Storage Squad. And congratulations on all your success and best of luck moving forward. Hey, guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having, thanks so much for having me on and for all the awesome work you do. Um, it's resources like what you all are putting out there that is really helping and making a big difference for people. So thanks so much. I'm really a fan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. It's been great chatting with you. All right, bye-bye. Talk soon. Wow, that was an awesome episode. I really enjoyed that. I've always wanted to start a service business. And literally, the things that have stopped me from doing it are the same things that he didn't even think about and then was able to overcome with with great marketing and great service. Yeah, I loved how they had like really in the beginning, just an idea, no real plan, no money. They just went out, they hit the ground running, were super resourceful, and they just did it. And I totally love that gem about how he said entrepreneurship is not a zero or a one. Yeah. I mean, too many people think, okay, I have to go all in if I'm going to start a business. You don't have to go all in. You can start something on the side, driving your old, what was he driving? A Cadillac and storing storing stuff in your dorm room. And that led to what is now a seven or eight figure business. I guess we never really talked about how big his business is, but I know it's pretty big. So anyway, great episode. I really enjoyed that. Anything else to add, Mrs. Scott? Let's wrap this up. Okay. She is Carol. I am Jay. Now go do something common, uncommonly well today. Yay, I said it correctly. Nice. Ha, whoever (laughs) would have thought. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. See you soon.